we're going to walk through Ephesians. Um, I typically teach messages based on themes or principles or concepts, and therefore I go ahead and bring scriptures from different places and put them together. Um, but when I first was saved and opened my Bible, and I had this a wonderful, amazing experience that I've been reading my Bible for months before I got saved, and I really struggled with it. I really had trouble understanding it, and what I could understand didn't seem to mean very much to me. And it wasn't as if I wasn't capable of reading. At that point, I was reading complicated law books. I could actually understand parts of the Internal Revenue Code. I'm not sure I could today, but I could back then. And so it's not that I couldn't understand things, but I had no spiritual, there was no spiritual life in me. And this is a spiritual book. And when people get on, make movies about it, and when they get on television and debate it, and they're not, they're not born again, and they don't have the author living inside of them, it's a waste of time. Because this is not an intellectual book. It's not a history book. It's not a science book. This is a spiritual book. And it's God's, God's way, his primary way, of communicating to us who he is, who he's made us to be, and what he's left us here to do, and, and as well as other things. And the Bible talks about, in a number of places, Paul talks about especially growing in, the, in wisdom and in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of the Lord. So we need to grow in wisdom and his knowledge. And so I, when I first got saved, all of a sudden this was a different book. It became alive to me. And somehow I just started with the book of Ephesians, and I decided to read the entire book every night for a month. And, and I thought, you know, when I started that, well because I'd never done this before. I was only saved a couple of weeks. You know, at, you know after a couple of times through this, you're going to get bored reading it. I'm still seeing things in here I've never seen before. Amen. Because this book is alive. This book is alive. And every time you get something, the Spirit of God in you, is the author, begins to open our eyes to see things. The second thing I want to say to you about the book of Ephesians is if I had to have only one book, if I were on a desert island and had to have only one book, this is the one I would want. If I had to have only one chapter, I'd have Romans 8. But... I've memorized that, so I really don't need that chapter. And I've memorized parts of this. But this is the complete gospel. This is a complete gospel. So it's just, I, I've been, I really felt led to go back and start just reading chapter one again, literally phrase by phrase, and letting those phrases sink into me. And, and it's, it's affecting me. It's having an impact in me. It's not that I'm seeing things in my mind I've never seen before, but things are happening down in my spirit that have never happened before. And I was praying in here uh, last week, really, as I was just praying in here, and it really came to me that, you know, maybe as I finish Spiritual Authority, which, by the way, is at the other end of this book, that to go and begin this book, now whether we're going to go through the whole book or not, I don't know, but we're going to spend some time in, in, the, in chapter 1. Before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of background on, the cha- on this book. Because we, we tend to read these, oh, this is Ephesians, this is 1 the, Thessalonians, this is Colossians. But these are letters written to churches. And when they wrote the letter to a church, by and large, they wrote it to one main church with the understanding that they would circulate that letter among the other churches. Because you understand, they didn't have a Bible. They couldn't carry around a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. They were writing it. They had the Old Testament in scrolls, parts of it in scrolls. Most of them had, if they were Jews, they'd memorized it. But this is written to Greeks, and they had memorized anything. They came out of, they were, they were like most of us. They were coming out of a carnal world, as carnal, if not more carnal, than the world that you and I live in. So we need to understand this is a letter written to them, written to other believers who are dealing with issues just like you and I are. People are people. 
whether, they, whether it was 2,000 years ago or it was yesterday, we're still people. This is the same devil and it's the same God. And the truth of God and the word of God is still the tr- same. It's still true. So I want to tell you just a little bit about, about, about Ephesus and the city of Ephesus and the people there. And I've got notes on that. And then I'm going to go preach the way I love to preach. I have no notes. So, uh, so and, and Ephesians 1, we could spend some time in there, but I do really want to get through it. Just a little bit of background on Ephesus. It's a city. It's located, in fact, would you put the slide up? I did put a couple of slides together. This is the one of, the, of a map. Would you put the map slide up, please? There we go. Uh, well, that projector, our old projector, died. So we borrowed a projector from downstairs that isn't quite designed for the size of that, but you can see how much clearer it is than this one, and the new ones we're going to get are much better than that. So, um, but this is Turkey, current Turkey, which at the time of the Bible was Asia Minor. And, and way down on the left-hand side, under the T and over to the left, you'll see Ephesus. So it's on the western coast. It was, a, it was at the time a, 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 a harbor, and in what had happened is it began because of the nature of the river that flows through there and the silt, kind of like the Narragansett Bay. It began to fill into the point that by the time of, by, by today, what, where, what, where Ephesus was is inland about 20 miles. And so, uh, uh, but at that time, it was, it was close to a sea. It was closing down. They were actually using uh, Miletus as a, as, as a uh, coastal uh, port. Uh, so it was, the other thing was it, it had originally been inhabited by Greeks, but at this time of the, this is written, it is a Roman, this is a Roman colony, as was most of this, this part of the world at that time. And this is a Roman capital. It was called a proconsul. One of the proconsuls of Rome was stationed there. So it's a very, it's a very sophisticated city. It's a very wealthy city. It's a city of commerce. It is a, the government center for that whole area was there. And also very important for this letter, it was a religious center. In this city was the old temple of Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. The the Romans called it Diana. And she was a goddess. She was considered to be, under Greek mythology, she was one of Zeus's daughters, and Zeus was considered the father of the gods. Of course, that's mythology, but that's what they believed. And she was she was the goddess of 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 of, uh, of 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 animal in nature, but she was also more importantly the goddess of fertility, and so she was worshipped that way, and therefore they conducted acts of fertility in the temple. This original temple, from what I understand, burned down, and then uh, just before the time we're talking about, it was rebuilt with tremendous splendor and cost, so that at that time it was known as one of the sender seven wonders of the ancient world. This was one of the big things to see in the known world at that time, was the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. And so in the story of Acts, that becomes important because Paul gets in trouble because they realized that they were selling one of the major industries was a tourist industry and they were selling statues of Diana and idols to be used to worship in the temple and when Paul goes around teaching that this is demonic stuff and that Jesus is the true God and that these are not gods it it hit them where people really care it hit them in their wallet they weren't concerned about the religious principle they were concerned about money and so a riot starts a riot starts it was also the home of one of the, probably the largest, you can show the next slide, probably the largest uh, amphitheaters in the world at the time. This seated, seated, 
uh, between, I've been, read estimates between 25 and 50,000 people. And it was, it was like, it was like uh, you know, whatever the biggest Colosseum we could find in the world is today. And you can see, you know, over 2,000 years later, it's still standing. When Tony Cook was here, he'd been there. He'd take a tour groups over there, and he showed pictures and were telling us what it was like. The acoustics are still good there. You can stand down at the, at the floor and be heard up near the top. So it was so well designed. So this was one of the things that this city was known for. Um, also, now Paul visited this city uh, uh, not on his first missionary journey, but on his second missionary journey, he visited the city. It's not believed that he founded the church there, but he visited the believers that were there. And then on his third missionary journey, uh, he stopped there and spent somewhere between two and three years there to establish it. And this book is written while he was in prison in Rome, probably between 55 and 60 B.C. So you, you can take those down now if you want. So that's basically some background to this letter. Uh, it doesn't affect what we're going to learn about it, but it does help to have some background and realize these are not just, this is not, you know, Nelson Publishing Company didn't come up with this. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to real people uh, to encourage them and strengthen them and remind them of certain things. Second thing I want to talk to you about a little bit is the pattern in this book. It's important to understand that there's a pattern in most of the letters Paul writes to churches. Now, the letter that Paul wrote to Rome was different. This was a wrote, written to a church he knew he'd been to. Most of them were letters to churches that he had founded. So he's basically dealing with issues in the churches. So in the letters to the Thessalonian church, uh, he's dealing with issues, that specific issues in that church because in some cases they were, some people come through telling them that the, you know, the, 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 the second coming of Christ had come and they'd all missed out. I mean, imagine thinking that you woke up the next day, the rapture had occurred and you weren't one of them that went. And there was panic and he encouraged them in that. Then there was other issues where some people weren't working because they expected Jesus to come back tomorrow so they were running up all their credit card debt and figuring Jesus is going to be the, the, Jesus is going to be the heavenly bankruptcy that's going to get them out of all of that. And Paul was, so those he's writing letters to. This he writes, and he writes also a letter to the church at Colossae, which is kind of a sister church to this church. And if you read that, it's very similar in ways. It's shorter, a little simpler, but it's very simple. The pattern which, which Paul wrote most of these letters to Ephesians, to Colossians, to some degree the church at Rome, which was not a church he found that he'd never even been there, and he wrote to them because he wanted them to know some things. Uh, these follow a pattern, and, 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 and because again, he's writing a letter to people that he knows, and he's either reminding them or correcting them about things. And First and Second Corinthians is very much like that, uh, because he's correcting specific problems and errors in the church. Paul's pattern is significant. Because what Paul does is he doesn't launch right into the correction. He doesn't look, say, I'm the Apostle Paul, and you're a bunch of turkeys. Even the fact that you live in Turkey, you're still a bunch of turkeys. I'm sorry about that. Um, Paul says, uh, I just felt the anointing drop. <laughs> it's your fault, Steve. <laughs> Where was I? Okay, yes. Uh, he doesn't just launch into an attack on you're doing this wrong and you're doing that wrong and get this straight. And I believe it's significant because I believe it's God as a father corrects us this way. Paul starts by reminding them who they are. He starts by reminding them who they are. And, and some of the greatest sources of revelation we have of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a new creation, comes from those parts of Paul's letters. 
And the richest, I believe, the richest one of those discussions are the first three chapters of Ephesians, especially the first two chapters and especially the first chapter. This is like spiritual cheesecake. I mean, this is like, you know, tiramisu. You pick your favorite richest dessert or food, and this is what this is like to the nth degree. And so the mistake you can make is to just read through it. Because if you just read through Ephesians chapter 1, you'll miss it because it is a mouthful. And we're going to read through it now together. I'm not, not out loud, but I mean, I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to go through it together. And, and, and if you just read it, it'll be, you won't even understand, have a beginning to understand what it talks about. But as it is with, with very good, high, fine, well-prepared food, you want to savor it in your mouth. This is what part of why God gave us a nose that's facing down so that not only could we smell whether the food's okay to eat or not, but so that we could enjoy it. If you've ever tried to eat delicious food when you've got a cold and your nose is stuffed up, you might as well just eat, you know, a McDonald's hamburger unless that's what you really like um, because, you know, you can't taste much of anything because your, 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 our, our sense of smell enhances the overall... Ex- I'm getting hungry. Enhances the overall experience... Of it. In the same way with the Word of God, if we go through it slowly and just begin to chew on it and let it just kind of roll around in our mind and then settle down into our heart and let the Spirit of God take it and begin to digest it inside of our spirit, it will begin to take on a meaning to you that will have a greater depth. And in the process, we get to know who God is better and we get to know who we are in His sight better. So are you ready for the journey? Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us. Father, we thank you tonight as we open this precious word that you've given to us. And Father, we don't take this word lightly. We understand, Father, that we could read this word every day for a hundred years and still not come to the bottom of it, of, of what you intend to say in here. But we're trusting the Holy Spirit tonight to take what each of us needs to hear, not just with our ears, not just with our mind, but we need to grasp down inside with our spirit man, our inner man, that we may leave here stronger, stronger in our knowledge of who you are, stronger in our knowledge of how much you love us, and greater in our knowledge of who you've made us to be and the privilege we have in Christ. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, the Apostle Paul is not telling them something they're going to get when they get to heaven. He's reminding them of who God is, of what God has done for them, and who he's made them to be. And then we're going to see when we get over to chapter 4, he just starts telling them, then act like who you are. Act like who you are. Sometimes, you know, if you have a good parent disciplining you, that's basically what they do. They wake you up sometimes as children and sometimes as older children. We need to be called back to a remembrance of who we are. You know, wake up, boy. Don't you realize who you are? You're part of this family. You're whoever it is. You know, your father was this. Your grandfather was this. You have a heritage. You have a purpose in life. Just to be awake because in the day-to-day activities of life, we just forget sometimes who we really are. And this is what Paul is doing here. Always starts with kind of a, a salutation. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Notice that. Paul knew who he was. He knew his calling. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Not by Paul's will, but by the will of God. It's written to the saints. That means not the ones in stained glass windows in in a church. The saints just comes from a word, agios, which means set apart ones. Those who have been set apart by God. And that's all that are in Christ. Saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So often Paul's letters start with that word imparting grace. And we can read that lightly just and take it casually, but I don't believe Paul wrote that rightly. I believe Paul weighed his words heavily. They're anointed by the Spirit of God. He's speaking grace into this church. Our words are important. Our words are important. Uh, in the Old Testament, it says, uh, offhand, I've forgotten where, I know where, but I've forgotten, where, where, where it says um, uh, uh, that we are to, that um, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it goes on to say, Zerubbabel shall cause this mountain to move by speaking grace, grace, grace to it. So grace is a powerful concept. Grace is not just God's unmerited favor, but it is the power of God. The salvation comes through grace. It is the dispensation that God gives. And so Paul writes this word to them and starts by grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Not the God of judgment in heaven, but a God who is our Father. He's my Father and He's your Father. He's our Father together, which means we're part of the same family. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where we're going to begin to chew a little bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual... Let me read down through it and then we're going to come back. I said I'd do that. Let's do that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved or by which He poured out upon us, some translations say, in the Beloved, bestowed grace upon us. Verse 7, In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound, that word actually means superabound towards us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to the good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of the glory of His glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding standing be enlightened. You might know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance of the saints, and the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believed according to the working of His mighty power, which He worshipped in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him in His right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the that which is to come. And He's put all things under His feet, giving Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all. My goodness. I wanted to read that to you just straight through to give you just an overwhelming sense 
of what's in there. We could take one of these phrases and go for a month, easily. And it's phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase of Paul speaking out of his spirit or writing out of his spirit the wonderful things of who God is and what God has done for us. We sang about the greatness of our God and the greatness of what he's done for us. And, the, and we don't know what the price he paid on the cross is. But we can get a glimpse in here of the wonderful riches of what God has done. Later on, he talks about the unsearchable, the unfathomable riches that are in Christ Jesus. And if you just look at Christ as, well, he's Jesus, then you've missed him. I don't mean you're not saved, you missed him. Because in him are unfathomable. That means there's no bottom, there's no limit to the riches that are in Christ. And that's what true worship comes from. It doesn't just come from singing songs. It comes from seeing in your spirit man, in your inner man, who this marvelous Christ is and this marvelous God and what he's done for us. So we need the spirit of God to take these words and begin to open the eyes of our understanding. And as we meditate on them out loud together, as we meditate on them together by studying together, trusting the spirit of God to begin to open our eyes and expand a revelation or understanding of who this God is and what he's done for you, and how he sees you, and what he's called you to in himself. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, we could spend a week just on the word has, because what tense is that? It's past tense. And in the Greek, it's a tense that implies something that's done once, and forever, that never has to be done again. Something that's done one distinct time, and then it has an effect through all the rest of time. Doesn't have to be done again and again. There are other words when it says in chapter uh, 5, we get over there, it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That word in Greek actually means in the being, being filled. It's an ongoing process. That's not what this is. This word means something that was done at one point in time, and when it was done, we're going to see, was before you were ever born, and its effect stays the same throughout all of eternity. Who has blessed us. So the same blessing that God is, when we say blessed, when Paul says blessed be the God and Father, Paul's not saying I'm blessing God. Because who's Paul to bless God? Who are you and I to bless God? He's real impressed with that. Oh yeah, Richard's blessing me tonight. Woo, yeah, thank you. I mean, I know he loves us and to come to us, but what do we have that we can bless God? No, he's describing God, how blessed he is. I mean, God is everything. He's the source of everything. Everything radiates from him. Life radiates from him. He's not full of life. He is life. He's the source of life. He is not full of light. He is the source of light. He's not full of love. He is the source of love. He is love. He, it all emanates from him. I mean, when the new Jerusalem comes down, the Bible says in Revelation, there's not going to be any need for a sun or moon. You're not going to have halogen lights or old incandescent lights or any of It's all going to be lit up by the face of God. No wonder Moses couldn't look in his face. God's blessed. <laughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. 
So he's taking the blessing that he is. He's taking the blessing that he has and he has shared that blessing with us. He's not holding it to himself. He, we're going to see as we go on. He's not meeting it out with an eyedropper. You know, well, what do you need today? I'm going to give you a little bit of blessing. No, God is generous. We'll see when we get to chapter 3. He does exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you can think or ask. According to the power that's in Him, in you. So God's... I had a message I did for a while. God's not stingy. God's generous. That's why He wants us to be generous. To be like Him. Because in our generosity, we step into the flow of God. God's not holding things back from you. Romans 8.32 says, He who spared not His own Son. If He didn't hold His own Son back, how will He also not together with Him freely give us all things? So whatever, whatever God's got, He has blessed us with in heavenly places. So well, what good does that do me down there? Well, that's where everything comes from. It all starts up in heaven. It all begins in heaven. And that's where it all ends. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now here we're going to see this in Christ. We're going to see in these first few verses, in Him or in Christ appears, I think six times I counted. We'll go through it at some point. One of the things we're going to see is all that God has done for us, all that God's made us to be, all of the forgiveness, all of the blessings, all of the righteousness, all that God has for us is not given to us separately as individuals. It's given to us because in the very beginning, when you came to Christ, He joined you to Christ. And that means, listen carefully, whatever Christ is, you are. Whatever Christ has, you have. Whatever God does for Christ, He does for you, because you're in Christ. You're one with Him. Whatever love the Father has for the Son, He has for you because you are in Christ. You've been made one with Christ, which is why in John 17, Jesus says, open their eyes that they may see that the love that you have for me, you also have for them, that you love them as you love me. Why? Because He just prayed that they would know that I'm in you and you're in me and they're in me and I'm in them. It's this union with Him that we need a revelation of because it will change your life. You will no longer face life alone. You will no longer see God as a resource to pull upon, but you will want to get as close to Him, dependent upon Him, worship Him, love Him, talk to Him as much as you can. This is why I talked a little bit on Wednesday, Sunday morning, and you'll hear me get into it much more, because this is the thing God's showing me and opening me. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, like the tree to us, and you're the branch. The branch's only job is to abide in the vine. That means stay joined up to Him. Stay one with Him. It is our union, our unity with Christ that is everything. And that takes the eyes off of you and me. So, well, I'm, I, you know, I don't know why I could be the righteousness of God because I know myself. Do you really? You're in Christ. When you came to Christ, you died. And you now have an identity. You are a Christian. <laughs> Just like that branch on the elm tree has no name or identity of its own. It's known as an elm branch because it belongs to the elm tree. 
your only identity in God's eyes and in the spirit realm is that you are Christ's branch. You are part of His body. You are one with Him. And if you'll begin to meditate on that, think about that. Scriptures will begin to jump out you. How many times it says, in Christ, in Him, in Christ Jesus, through Christ. And we're going to see it here. And that's why so many of us struggle receiving these things, because we know ourselves. That's like the branch pulling itself off of the tree and saying, I can't do anything. That's right. That's what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's not a shock. If you could do something apart from Him, He wouldn't need you to be part of Him. You'd be your own tree. And that's something the Lord showed me. He says when we live apart from Him, we're trying to take our branch and plant it as a tree, hoping it's going to grow. All right, let's move on. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he's going to begin to describe some of these blessings. So these blessings are us in Christ. Because we're in Him, and because He has these blessings, we have these blessings because we're in Him. Just as He chose us. Look at that, in Him. So He chose us to be in Him. He chose us to be one with His Son. Now think about what that means. Think about who His Son is. Don't just think about Jesus who walked on the earth and healed the sick and raised the dead and went to the cross. This is referring to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning. This is the second person of the Godhead. The, the, the one the Bible tells us, by whom and through whom and for whom all of this was created. The Father is the initiator, it's His will, but the one who, who carried it out, the one who oversaw it, the one who accomplished it is the Son, the second person of the Godhead. Which is why when things went wrong, He was the one that had to come down here and get it right. Because He was the one responsible for this creation. And when, if you read in 1 Corinthians 15, when this is all finished and summed up, he turns and hands all authority back to the Father. Why? Because what he came back to do is finished. And that's when he's declared it by faith on the cross, it is finished. It's the second person of the Godhead. It's the second person of God. It's the second person of God that you and I were joined to. You and I. Sinners. Rebellious trying to live our own kingdom and establish our own way. You may not think you're rebellious, but in the Bible terms, you are, because any, way, any effort to live apart from God, any effort that's not completely dependent on Him, the Bible calls rebellion. It's establishing your own way and your own kingdom, and we're all, we're all saturated with that. We're in various degrees of deliverance, but we all have a long way to go, including me. And the more I think I'm getting there, the more I find out how far I got to go. But God took us with all our frailties and weaknesses, with all our pride, all our self-centeredness, selfishness, ego, all our sensitivity and get hurt so easily, all the things we want to accomplish and we want to do, God took all of that and joined us 
to his precious son, the second person of the Godhead. But he couldn't do that without doing something else first. He had to pay for our sins so that he could give us his righteousness. See, God didn't just take when it says we are the righteousness of God in Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God didn't take a piece of Christ's righteousness and come down, you know, and, and Jerry, here, here's, here's some of my righteousness, just enough to make you Renee, Here's some, you know, Jerry, here's some, here's some, you know, here's some, you know. No, 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 no. He took you and me and he joined us to him. Paid for our sins so he could legally do that. But if he just paid for our sins and left us on his own, we're just going to go out and we're going to, you know what's going to happen? What happened in the Old Testament? Their sins were paid for when they brought the sacrifice to the tabernacle and then the next day they went out and sinned again. So they had to come back the next year and, the next, and do it all over again. This is why it says in, in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, it was done once and for all. Because the blood of the lamb paid for it once and for all. Now he could join you. Well, this is what he says here. Look what he goes on to say. So he's, he's blessed us in Christ. He chose us to in him before the foundation of the world. So before you did anything right or wrong, before you established yourself or failed or, you know, whatever you've done right or wrong, before your failed relationships or marriage, before whatever, before all of that, knowing all of that, your sin never surprised him, you know. Your failure never surprised him. He knew it was going to happen ahead of time. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. He chose you to be in his son, to be joined to his son. Now, we're looking at this tonight from God's perspective. We're not looking at so much right now of what we're getting out of this. We're going to learn... We're just going to learn, begin to learn something about God. And you can learn something about somebody by watching what they do. If you watch somebody long enough, you begin to get a pattern. And I do this. When people come in here brand new, you know, and they said, you know, oh, pastor, you know, I did this. I was in ministry here, and I did this. And I said, yeah, I did that. You know, and I did this. And I said, that's wonderful. What would you like me to do? Well, there's a blue seat right over here. I'd like you to sit for a while because I'd like to watch you. Because it's amazing how many times people do that and then they're here for a month and then they're led somewhere else. And if I had, now I've seen situations where people found somebody that had talent or a gift and said, you know, well, boy, we need you in the music ministry and put them right up there and didn't know who they were putting up there. This is why the Bible says to not lay hands on somebody that's young in the Lord too quickly and also says, know those that labor among you. Know them. Watch them. So you learn something by watching people, but you can also learn something about God by watching Him. And He tells us, before we were ever born, things He did for us. So listen to this. God chose us. Now we're, we're meditating on this out loud. God chose us. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, because He knew they needed to hear, He says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. That's so important. That's so important. And I know I've said this before, but it just needs to sink into us. God chose you. God chose you. If you're in Christ, you didn't choose Him. You and I aren't that smart. He chose you. He chose you. Knowing everybody, everything you would ever do, He chose you before the foundation of the world. 
I remember when I was a young boy, we played games in our neighborhood, you know. And in, in, in our family, I was the oldest and the biggest, so I knew I, would, I was usually one of the captains. But if I was with other groups of other guys, uh, there's this tense moment. Now, ladies, you may not understand this, but some of the guys will, where they're going to pick up teams for a pickup game of baseball or something like that, you know. And the biggest, the strongest guys, they get picked first, and the rest of us are kind of, you know, looking around, hoping somebody's going to pick us. And then they kind of picked everybody else up, and you're the leftover one and say, well, uh, who, you, who gets him? I was that guy. Okay? And so I never had a lot of confidence that I was going to be chosen early on. But this says God chose me very early on. He chose me before the found. He chose you. God, who knows everything. You ever apply for a job and you fill out an application or you prepare, you know, you're putting out a resume and, and nowadays they've got all kinds of websites that will help you fill out a resume and they'll tell you, you know, you shouldn't word it that way. You know, you want, to, you want to present yourself in the best possible light because, and really underneath that is because if they really knew everything, they might not want to hire me. I'll let them find out later, okay? Not that we lie, but we just, you know, there's certain ways of wording things and we live in a, in, we live in a spin society where everything's, you know, taking the truth and just expressing it in the most favorable light, let's put it that way. And, and, and the problem is when you've done that, and we not only do that in applications, we do that with people. We want to present our best front to people when we meet them. And that's nothing wrong with that as long as you realize that's what you're doing and somewhere they're going to have to get to know you if you're ever going to have any kind of meaningful relationship with each other. And so we want to put the best front on and what we don't realize is we try to do the same thing with God. We, don't, we forget who He is. And so, you know, even when we're praying or we're trying to confess something, we try to put it in the best light. Like, he doesn't know. Well, you know, God, you know, I, you know, I, you know I, I meant to do well. He knows what you meant to do better than you know what you meant to do. He's just waiting for you and me to get honest with him. I don't know how I got off on that. That's not in here. So we want to present the, ourselves in our best light to each other as well as to God. And we don't understand he knows everything. He knows your innermost thoughts before you know them. The Bible says that there's nothing hidden, nothing, nothing hidden from his sight. Now, to some people, that's scary. I like it because I don't fully trust my own intentions sometimes. I, you know, I can, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you don't either. But I know God will look in me and he'll correct me where the truth is. But knowing all that, knowing every thought, Thoughts you may not want, know, not want me to know you have. And thoughts I may not want you to know I have. <gasps> Come on, you're the same way that I am. <laughs> you ever thought nasty about somebody? You didn't say it. You were good. God knows all those things. And knowing all of that, knowing your worst day, knowing the worst things you would ever say, the worst things you would ever do, He still chose you. You know what that does? That takes the pressure off of you. They know, he knows what he got. I had to settle that early on as a pastor here. I said, God, do you know? I know you put me here. Now, you know, preaching, I love to do that. But other aspects pastoral ministry are being responsible for all of you. <laughs> I know he put me here. 
I know he called us to be here for this time. I'm beginning getting clear what he called us to do. And so I would come here and I would start, then I learned to stop. I can't question your judgment. I don't understand, but I'm not going to question your judgment. And it took the pressure off of me. Now, if I had, you know, submitted a resume and gone through a screening process, as some pastors do, you know, and some board votes on you, and then they find out what the turkey is that they got, you know, there's always... But with God, He knows. The fact that He chose you takes the pressure off of you because He knew who you were when He chose you. Now, what did He choose you? It goes on to say here. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Stop there a second. His first purpose was to have you before him, with him. And here's God's problem. He's holy, and he's without blame. And if he brings into his presence, if he joins to his son, someone or something that's not holy and has blame there's going to be a reaction. And the reaction is the holy is going to win over the unholy. Because the holy is pure, it's going to destroy the unholy. It's kind of like you know, the story of the Midas touch, King Midas, you know, who wished, or I don't remember how he got the power that whatever he touched turned to gold. And now he found out he couldn't touch it. He touched his daughter. He went up to touch his daughter, and she turned to gold. Is that how the story went? It's like God loves you. He wants you. But if he touched you, destroy you. Because we're not holy. So God, we're looking at it from God's perspective. God's saying here, I chose you, and what I chose to do was I chose to make you holy and without blame before me. Wow. God's vision for you before you were ever born is that it would bring you to the place that you would be able to stand before him holy and without blame. Notice the next two words in love what motivated him to do that because he's trying to get more people no it's love for you he loved you and he wanted you and so his plan was to do whatever it took whatever listen to me whatever it cost whatever it cost so that you could be holy and without blame before you before him he loved you so much that whatever it cost even if it was his son's life, he was willing to pay so that he could have you for himself holy and without blame in his love for you. Wow. Motivated, driven by his love for you. Why would we ever doubt him? Why would we ever doubt that he would take care of us? Why would we ever doubt that he would provide for us? Why would he ever doubt that he would heal us? Why would we ever doubt anything about a God who before time began looked through all of time and saw you and me and the mess we were going to make of our lives and the mistakes we were going to make and through all of that he says, I love them so much I'm going to choose them now to be in my son and make them holy and without blame. Do you know how priceless that is? The guilt that's destroying people's lives tonight just out in Providence. The guilt that's in the church still that's destroying people's lives that's causing them to live on pills and, 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 and deal with depression. So much of it, not all of it, so much of it's rooted in guilt. 
Guilt is the devil's hold on people's lives. It's the power of sin is the law. It's the guilt that comes from failing, from not coming up. It's a hold that the devil has on people's lives that God loves. God's plan for you is to free you. Free me of all guilt and all shame so that we could stand before him clean pure and holy. Wow. How he must love us. How wonderful this God must be. Verse 5. Having predestined, don't get hung up on that word, that just means planned for ahead of time. Us to adoption, adoption as sons. Wow. Not only does he want us with him in love. Not only does he want us holy and without blame in love, he doesn't just want us with him, he wants us belonging to him. It's the difference when you have a visitor, you know, the kid that lives down the street who's sleeping overnight, you know, he may be there all the time, but he's not your family. And adopting them into your family. But imagine adopting into your family people that are the Bible says, were your enemy. People that were rebellious trying to establish their own way and their own kingdom. People that in some cases blasphemed your name. People that used your name in vain. People that violated all your rules and commandments and yet you still love them. You still chose them. You love them and chose them to be in you and your son and stand holy and without blame and shame before you. And then, beyond that, your plan was to adopt them as your own child? Now, it's an interesting thing about an adopted child. An adopted child comes into the family because they, picked, they were picked out of the group. A child that's born, in most cases, they were wanted. Some cases, they weren't wanted. Some of you may be children that were children of parents that didn't want you. Your parents may even be people that really didn't know each other very well. They just had a time together, and you're the result of that time together. And so you may not have grown up with parents that wanted you. And that's a, that can be something that has to be overcome in our life because it's a lack of something. It's that we're missing something that, that God intended to be built in us through parents that loved each other, were married together, and, 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 and raised us in that kind of atmosphere, but so many people today were not raised in that kind of atmosphere. I was not. And I know somewhat of what it's like to try to overcome all that. But the place to turn is here. Your parents may not have wanted you. You may have children you didn't want. But God wanted you. To be adopted means you were picked out. You were chosen. God wanted you. And he didn't just want you to be with him. He wanted you to belong to his family. We're going to see, not tonight, but as a result of that, there's an inheritance because children get an inheritance from their parents. There's an inheritance that Paul prays he wants God to open our eyes to see. That's our glorious hope, is the inheritance as children that we have. So when you get up in the morning or whenever it is you go to pray, realize this. It may feel like a burden to you to pray, and sometimes it does to me. But from God's side, it's not a burden. He's waiting for you to open your eyes. 
Do you know that? God's waiting for you to open your eyes in the morning. He's waiting. I remember when, and I've told you this story about our granddaughter when she was younger, we went on vacation. And, you know, it was the biggest thrill for her was to know that her grandma, her nama, she calls him, was sleeping in this room. And she said, can I go wake her up? I said, oh, yeah, she'd love that. And she just went there and stared at her. I mean, we first married. And we're first married and living together, you know. I just wake up and just kind of look at her. She used to be 800 miles apart. Now she's next to me. And I can just wait for her to open her eyes. Do you realize God does that for you every day? He's waiting for you to come and talk to him. He's waiting for you. You say, well, I don't know what to say. It doesn't matter. With little children, you don't care what they say. Babies, when they start, oh, you know what my son, grandson did? He said, da, 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 da. He said, papa, oh, wow. That's not very sophisticated. <clears throat> and if you come to me with your child and say, they said, da, da, da. Oh, that's nice. But when my child or my grandchild says, papa, I still hear that sound even though they're 10 or 11 years old, but I see them here in church, school, and I say, Papa, and they come up and hug me, you know. I wait for I go looking for the opportunities. They can't do anything for me, really. We do things for them. But they're our grandchildren, our children. So God, this is what this is talking about, relationship. And what we've made is religion out of all of it. It separates it. It's, we turn it into principles and ideals and theology. God's not talking theology here. He's talking relationship. He wants us to know what his desire, his heart is towards us. I chose you before the foundation of the world. And I know you were messed up, but I chose you and found a way to make you holy and without blame before me. In love! And in him I predestined you and I adopted you as my own sons and daughters of my own. Wow! That's why Jesus, of course, had that revelation. Jesus said in... In, John, in Matthew chapter, I think it's 6, he says, you know, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles who have no relationship with God. You're a child of God. Talk to him as your father. He knows what you need before you talk to him. Why? Because he's watching over you. Good parents know what they're children. They're watching over them. Oh, you know what? I think they need to be changed. I think they need to be fed. I think they need this, you know, especially new parents. Ah, I wonder what they need, you know. How do we know how to do this, you know? God's not a new parent, but he's watching over you. He's watching over you. Well, I don't feel his presence. That doesn't mean he's not watching over you. That's our issue. That's not his issue. If you don't feel his presence, that's not because he's not there. It's because somehow there's us in between him. Or there are issues or there are things, cares we've let into our life and into our heart that have become an issue between us and him. Oh, how he loves you. There's an old song, Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his son. What more can he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Now I want to end with this one. Having predestined, that's verse 5, according to the adoption as sons and, and daughters, of course, by Jesus Christ to himself. So he adopted you through Christ to himself. Look at this. According to the good pleasure of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. You don't get it. Because if you get it, you couldn't sit still. According to the good pleasure of God, his good pleasure, it wasn't that he did it. It wasn't that he was happy. It was his pleasure to do it. 
his good pleasure. He did it according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what he's wanted to do. When you gave your life to Christ, he's been waiting. Oh, heaven rejoices, the Bible says. He's been waiting for you. We think, oh, well, I'm so insignificant. There's so many people, but he's a big God. He's a big God. Look at the big universe he created. And as far as we know, this may be one of many, but this is ours, and it's a huge, enormous universe. But it's nothing to him in size. And yet, on the same time, Look at the intricacies of your human body, the, eye, the cells of your eye, and the, and the sensitivities of, of, of the, uh, in the retina of your eye, of each one of those, I forgot what they're called, the little rods in your eye. Wow! They can see. They have trouble telling whether the dress is black and blue or whether it's white and gold, but they can see. Some of you know what that is, some of you don't. Amazing things down to the little microscopic things that they're just beginning to discover. He knows all of that. says he knows the number of the hairs on our head. Wow. According to the good pleasure of his will, and this is what we'll end with, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is all to glorify and magnify his grace, how gracious he is. We get over in chapter 2, we're going to see that God's going to show you and me as a trophy to the spiritual powers in heavenly places, to show you and me as a trophy of what God's grace and God's love will do. So you and I are not going to be presented as trophies of how much we accomplished. You and I are not going to be presented as, as trophies of how much we learned or how, how faithful we were. You and I are going to be presented as trophies of what God's grace can do with a mess like me and a mess like you. Wow. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Wow. And the last of that says, in some translations, which He lavished on the Beloved, which He poured out on his, in His Beloved. King, New King James says, made accepted in His Beloved, but it literally means bestowed favor. And again, some translations say lavished and his beloved. We're going to have to stop here tonight, but I would encourage you to just go through these verses just as we've gone through tonight and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to open your eyes. And at first you may not see much, but just keep going on because you're, you're, you're watering the seed and that's what he needs in order to cause this to grow in you. And you'll come away as you do this with a greater confidence, a closer intimacy with God, a greater confidence... God's love for you and how important and precious you and I are to him. Father, we thank you. We sow seed tonight into our hearts and we ask you to take this seed and to water it with the word of life by the power of your spirit so that it will begin to grow and mature and produce a crop of grace, a crop of love, a crop of peace, 30, 60, and a hundredfold, so that others will see it and be drawn to you. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.